0: Well, please remain standing and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We are going to start a new series today on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 23. If you're new to Christianity aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed this text for you and your worship guide on page 10. This is... God's Word, Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 23. And He, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So His fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then the Sermon on the Mount, and then the end of the Sermon, and... Chapter 7, verse 28. This is the response. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You may be seated. Do you pray with me one more time and ask God's blessing on his word preached this morning. Let's pray. Father... As we have sung, it is our prayer that you would speak to us as we gather under the word this morning. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would hear the sweet voice of a gracious and powerful Savior. Your word comes with both truth and grace because you are full of both. And so. By your holy spirit make us hearers and then doers of your word we need you and so speak to us we pray this in your name our savior amen well as i just mentioned we're going to start a new series today on the sermon on the mount if you're a women's bible study you've begun this um, as well um, this is just a sweet providence, a coincidence that we would be doing this at the same time when the women's Bible study was thinking about doing this. I said, man, that's great. This is what we've been thinking about too. Um, and so here we go. We're going to start a new series today. It'll probably take us through the summer months, um, and up, at least up until the summer months. We're probably through the summer months. And as you know, I thought about this um, and, and was watching the, the events unfold this week of inaugurating a new president and going through the end of an election cycle with the inauguration of a new president, um, I was thinking about how much of the last few months have been just filled with one speech after another, stump speeches, um, debates, rising all the way up to the, you know, sort of the pinnacle, the... the inaugural speech where things get said and I thought about how many times over the last 200 plus years of our nation's history have we had inaugural speeches and how few of those get remembered you might remember ask not what you can do for your country but what your country could do for you but out of the rest of the inaugural speeches you probably remember Nothing that was said. You might remember even bits and pieces of something that was said this past Friday... As, ...as millions watched and millions forgot. But this is here in Matthew chapter 5... ...one of the most popular sermons ever preached. In some ways, this is Jesus' inaugural address. And his words, as I've thought about this... ...I was amazed... At how they have literally stood the test of time over 2,000 years. This sermon has made it even into popular culture. If you if you're, aren't a follower of Jesus, you will be familiar with many of the words that he has said. For instance, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've probably heard it, you've, you've heard him say, Love your enemies. No one can serve two masters. Do not be anxious. Judge not lest you be judged. The golden rule, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. The Lord's prayer that we recited together as a congregation today. All of these words, even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have probably heard at some point these words. This sermon has stood the test of time. And so what we're going to do today is really a sermon on the sermon. An introduction before next week we begin to dig into the first part of his sermon, the Beatitudes. And so I want you to think about this sermon today as an orientation that will set a road map for how we will study the Sermon on the Mount in the coming months. And what we're going to look at today are really three things. The king's people, the king's pattern and the king's power so first the king's people we've got to guard ourselves from simply seeing the sermon on the mount as simply jesus giving a morality or a moral system that divorces the teaching of jesus from the person of jesus These chapters, chapters 5 through 7, are given in a broader context. They're not just kind of dropped out of heaven as a law, as a moral system. The Jesus who is speaking these words to us in the Sermon on the Mount, who is the Jesus who came in the form of a baby, as Matthew tells us, to save his people from his sin. The same Jesus that gives us the Sermon on the Mount, heavy with instructions on how to live as his people, is the same Jesus that died on the cross for the sins of his people. Jesus is not giving a moral system for the world to follow. It's much more significant than that in the Sermon on the Mount. What he's doing is he is creating a new people with a new identity, a new life, and therefore a new way of living. He's a king who brought a kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount is first his pattern of living for his kingdom people, those who have come under his reign. This is a king who brought a kingdom. And in that kingdom is the place where humans flourish. That's going to be one of our themes going forward as we study the Sermon on the Mount. This is the pathway to human flourishing. When Jesus begins his earthly ministry, he begins to preach about the kingdom of God. This is a king who brought a kingdom with instructions for his people. And when he begins to preach, he preaches, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in 4.23, in our passage that we read this morning, we're told that he goes into the synagogues in Galilee and he's preaching. And he's preaching very specifically that the kingdom of God is... There, he preaches the gospel. Now you, if you've kind of been around Christianity, you can think, yeah, 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 i get the gospel. Jesus died for my sins. But that's not the way Jesus proclaims the gospel. In 4.23, the gospel is that the kingdom of God is here. The gospel is here of the kingdom. That's good news and it's a lot bigger than we typically think. This is not just about you getting an insurance policy so you can get into heaven one day. This is an announcement that God has come to make things right. The kingdom of God doesn't isn't a physical place that takes up fifth space on the earth. The kingdom of God is the place where Jesus reigns and where he reigns, he reigns with new life. The kingdom of God eventually one day will take up a physical place when Jesus returns. But in that place, it will be glorious for two reasons. Jesus is there and sin's not. And so the whole creation is flourishing. And so when Jesus announces that the kingdom of God is among you, is because Jesus himself is the kingdom. The reason that it's helpful to see the Sermon on the Mount in this context of the kingdom of God because the king has come to create for himself a new people is because it, it allows it to be more than just moral instruction. This is not just Jesus telling you who you should be. This is Jesus telling you who he's making you to be. A king brings a reign by conquering enemies and creating a new people. And so this is the king's message to his people, but it's also, therefore, the king's pattern of living because God is creating a new people, a flourishing, thriving people. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, look, this is the pathway to thriving as a human being who's been created in the image of God. This is the pattern for living as his kingdom people. As I keep belaboring the point, this is not first ethical instruction It needs to be seen in the broader context of God's acts of redemption and creating a new people. This is not the first time that a pattern for living is given on a mountain in the Bible. There are parallels here throughout the book of Matthew to Moses and the Exodus. For instance, as a child, Jesus flees in Matthew chapter 3 to Egypt just as Israel did. And then, and then Jesus leaves Egypt and goes through the waters and enters into the promised land, just as Israel did. And after his water baptism, he enters into a time of testing in the wilderness, just as Israel did. And then he takes his people up on a mountain and instructs them how to live as his people. And the reason this is important for us to see is because it allows us to do two things with the Sermon on the Mount. One, it allows us to connect it to the rest of the Bible. And two, it allows us to see in the broader context of God redeeming a people for himself who would experience his recreating power. The law is given so that God's people would stand out in the world mirroring his ways. So God's new people who live by God's commands are the most flourishing people in the world. Perhaps you've had this experience. You get a new set of of shelves or maybe a toy that you have to put together. And you you put out all the pieces on the ground and you think, man, this can't be too hard to figure out. It's got to leave the directions to the side. And you get about halfway through the first few steps, pretty easy to figure out. And then you get done about the middle apart and you're like, I don't know where to go from here. This is too complicated to do without the instructions. The most early basic steps were pretty easy to figure out. But the more complicated it got, the more you were confused. Well, the Sermon on the Mount, the law of God in general, is your maker saying, Here is how I have designed you to live. Here's the pathway to flourishing as a human being who was created in my image. The parts are too hard for you to put together by yourself. And so let me tell you. And Jesus embodied these things. He was the most flourishing person who ever lived. He thrived for two reasons. Both, one, because he was God in the flesh. The makers come down and showed us how we were to to live. And second, as fully man, he lived life by God's design. And so when you say Jesus says love your enemies. He's then said to those who murdered him on the cross. Father forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. And so here's where it gets really hard though. The sermon on the mount is going to undo you. If you're really listening to it. And there are two reasons why it will undo you. First. The Sermon on the Mount is difficult because Jesus focuses on being and not doing. He focuses more on who you are than what you should do. His focus is on the heart as it affects the hands. Your person more than on your performance. The flourishing person, the one who's thriving in this one, is the one who is genuine. Who is not faking their righteousness. Hypocrisy is death. The hypocrite who fakes being better than they are knows little to nothing of Jesus. A new person, someone who's living under the king in his kingdom doesn't pretend to be better than they are. They Instead, they're working to change their hearts by letting God's law expose hidden sin, hidden corners of wicked lives, exposing motivations, and so Jesus is raising the bar on the Sermon on the Mount, and it should undo us. And second reason why it's so hard is because obeying the Sermon on the Mount is hard because the pattern of flourishing laid out, the patterning of living a thriving life laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, is radically countercultural. It's, it's radically different than the way the world thinks about flourishing. Countercultural because it's otherworldly. The kingdom and the king have come down from another realm to introduce to us another way of living. And so, where the world says that freedom is flourishing, Jesus says, Anyone who hears my word and lives under my authority will thrive. Anyone who builds their house on my words will be rock steady and solid. They will be the most stable. Flourishing person. The world says self-strength and self-confidence is flourishing. But Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth. The world says make sure you get noticed so you get credit. Jesus says beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The world says there's joy in gathering wealth and possessions. Jesus says don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy And where thieves break in and steal. It runs, we'll find, the sermon will run against every message that you receive on a day-to-day basis. D.A. Carson has this really honest assessment of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, The more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. No room is left by Jesus for forms of piety which are nothing more than veneer and sham. He just undoes us. Perfection is what is demanded, which brings us to the king's power. Jesus, and you need to hear this, Jesus doesn't expect just anyone to live this way. I mean, Jesus has a hard assessment of the state of humanity. While it's popular to say, I believe in the goodness of humanity even though we have lived through the bloodiest century on record with more wars and genocide than in any other time of human history, counter to those commands is popular to say, I believe in the goodness of humanity. Jesus, on the other hand, has a different assessment, which makes, I think, a lot more sense. Every man, woman, and child is born in sin and has a disposition to rebellion against God and his ways. I mean, this is the hard truth of the gospel. You can do nothing good. You cannot change yourself. From birth, we have been born with an inclination to sin. It's, it's something more than you just do, it's something who you are. It's a controlling disposition, corrupt to the core. And so, this is Jesus' baseline context. This is what he's saying about you and me. He doesn't expect you to obey by yourself. That's the tension we should feel. Jesus is not saying, come and obey these things. Because he first says, apart from me, you can do nothing. One of the things that Jesus is doing here on the Sermon on the Mount is raising the bar of what God requires. This is what legalism does. Legalism lowers the bar and says, you can attain this. You can be a good person by your own effort. Jesus is raising the bar, and he's putting obedience to God out of the reach of every one of us who tries to do so by our own power. For instance, when he says adultery isn't just laying in someone else's bed when you're not married. Adultery is anyone who looks at another with lustful intent. He crushes, in that one statement, everyone who is prepubescent and beyond. And so Jesus is creating this tension with the Sermon on the Mount. He's realistic about the depth of sin. It goes much deeper than you realize. But he is also realistic about his power to create a new people. John Stott brings this tension into play. When he says this, he says the standards of the Sermon on the Mount are neither readily attainable by every man nor totally unattainable by any man. Jesus puts them beyond the reach of everyone and to ignore that ignores Christ's purposes but to put them within everyone's reach is to ignore the reality of sin. And these are the two realities that will come out. Or Jesus is saying to us, I'm going to raise the bar so that it undoes you, and then you'll need to flee to me. So as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, we always need to remember, again, who is giving us this sermon. Jesus is radically different than other moral teachers. See, but Buddha can instruct, but he can't empower. Philosophical systems can create ethics, but they cannot give the ability to obey. But the Jesus who commands things that are beyond our reach also has the ability to grant us the power to obey. See, when you become a Christian, you receive a new heart. You're no longer a slave to sin. Jesus has conquered the powerful enemy of sin in your life and has set you free so that he then says, if any man is in Christ, behold, new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You belong to Jesus if you're a Christian. You belong to Jesus and his kingdom. And as a result, he is the new ruling power in your life. And just as sin dwells in you, and it was once the ruling authority, Jesus now dwells in you if you're a follower of Jesus by his Holy Spirit. And he is greater than your sin. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Grace isn't just about acceptance with God. It's also about being transformed into his holy people. God's grace forgives and transforms. And so Paul reminds Titus that the grace of God has appeared to all people, bringing salvation for all people. And that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Jesus didn't just die to cleanse you from the guilt of your sin. He did just that. And when the sermon undoes you, when the law of God undoes you, you should say, but in Christ I am forgiven. And you should also say, and in Christ I have the power to obey. So Paul goes on instructing Titus who has given himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus died it's a a reference to the cross and he's done so to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It is a practical denial of the death of Jesus not to strive to live into obedience to what he commands. Don't deny the gospel by not working to obey jesus the jesus who commands things that are beyond our reach also has the ability to grant to us the power to obey and so how do we tap into that power let me close with this because there's a, there's something hidden that's going on that's very important to both matthew's gospel and the whole of the bible From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is doing something that is central to the power of his kingdom. Central to his ministry. He is teaching and preaching. In chapter 4, when he's tempted by Satan, in an epic power battle that makes Star Wars look like a kid's YouTube video, Jesus defeats Satan and leaves him licking his wounds by the power of God's word. He leaves that battle and immediately begins his ministry in Galilee by doing one thing, preaching throughout Galilee. Here we're told that there are massive crowds gathered around him and he does one thing with the crowds that he's gathered. He teaches them. He sits them down on the mountainside and he says, I have things to say to you. But notice the reaction to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 that we read. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority. Now, Jesus' authority is really, really different than other exercises of authority in this world. For instance, when a police officer pulls you over, he has the authority to write you a ticket. He has the authority to punish. The exercise of authority in this way has the power to coerce, but not transform. The power to conform you, but not to give you a love for obeying the law. Many police officers would love to give you the ability to obey the law out of a love for it. But when Jesus exercises authority, he does so through his word and brings power that changes one thing into another. And when he changes one thing into another, it is always new life that is exploding with life. So when God speaks in creation, he makes a beautiful, life-giving, flourishing world out of nothing. Just speaks it into existence. And when Jesus speaks, the dead are raised and restored to their families. When Jesus speaks with authority, the storms are calmed and death is held back. When Jesus speaks, he does so with authority and demons flee, leaving new people who are now in their right minds. Put it another way, when Jesus speaks, he confers what he commands. He says, you must obey. But when he speaks, he does so as one who gives the power to obey what he commands. He confers what he commands. Or put it another way, by the word of Jesus, Jesus gives us the power to obey his word. So the Sermon on the Mount will kill you if you try to obey it on your own. But if you become one who takes his word into your heart and lives by it, works to live by it, you will find yourself becoming a flourishing person. Not because you've obeyed, but because the power of Jesus has transformed you into one who loves to obey. This is the pathway of flourishing. First, because it exposes us. And then because it drives us to Jesus. And then it makes us doers and not just hearers of the word. Let me close with this promise of the power of God's word. To take something that was destitute and barren and bring life. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven. And do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall accomplish. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed and the thing for which I sent it. This is where Jesus' authority is so very different. He does not just speak with authority, telling us who we should be. When we come to his word, he speaks with authority, making us who we should be. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and ask that you would do just what you have said you will do Make your word make us to be doers and not just hearers. We want, to, we want to live out your grace in our lives. We want to be transformed by you. We want to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We want to have a zeal for good works. And so make us a people who are thriving towards obedience. Striving by the power of Jesus. To become what he says we are. Make us people who live like your kingdom is a present reality in our lives and that you are the king who has defeated sin, Satan, and death and has brought a whole new reality. Oh, would the world see your gracious power at work through our obedience. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.